0: If you are a visitor here today, we got notice a handful of new friends here with us today. Uh, welcome. Uh, we are uh, in the middle, or kind of the early portions of preaching through a really long Old Testament book. Um, so please don't leave yet. Um, we it, it is our practice here to primarily just preach through the Bible, kind of book by book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter kind of thing. And we're looking at the Old Testament book of Exodus. Um, if you brought a Bible, you're, you're welcome to, to open that up now to Exodus chapter 3. Uh, if, you, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the words projected for you. Um, but uh, we, are, we are just kind of going to slowly work through um, sections. Now, Now the first 15 chapters of Exodus is really, um, it's kind of the, it's the sweet stuff. It's the stuff that... Children's church, you know, stories are made of. So it's largely it's largely narrative. So if you're not familiar with the Bible, this is God's Old Testament people, the Israelites, and, and they're in Egypt. Um, they're enslaved in Egypt now, and and God is going to he's going to do some he's going to do some things. I, I won't give away all the the spoilers. But um, the latter portions of Exodus are a little bit slower. Uh, they're a little bit more tedious, and we, we, I do plan on preaching through those, but we're gonna we're gonna pause um, after the first fifteen chapters. So just so you know where we're headed, uh, we're gonna spend the next several months in the uh, first fifteen chapters of Exodus, and then we'll we'll close it out at another time. We're gonna be looking at Exodus chapter three this morning. Before before I read the passage, um, I want you to perhaps think of some powerful personal encounters with people um, that you have had in your life. Um, so, you know, thinking, you know, maybe that, that first date uh, with somebody that you enjoyed their company with, uh, you know, moving along. Maybe it was this powerful encounter of your bride adorning the aisle and coming there. That's kind of a powerful personal encounter. Or, or maybe it was the, the meeting, the, the first time you met your first child. Um, you know, the second and third and fourth are important too, but let's be honest. <laughs> Let's be honest. That first that first moment. Um, today's passage, we get to we kind of get to observe a, a really powerful encounter of one man uh, with the living God of the Bible, and um, <clears throat> and I and I want us to see this more as more than just a narrative of somebody else, right? It's not just us kind of unpacking somebody else's story, but really seeing our own narrative woven into this passage and, and seeing what an encounter with the living God actually looks like. So let's go ahead and read. Uh, we're actually just going to look at the first uh, 10 verses of chapter 3. So let me go ahead and read that for us. This is, this is the word of the Lord uh, this morning from Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he, fled, he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Let's pray and ask God to bless the preaching of his word. Father, we pray that you, by your spirit, would help us not just to understand your word, but to to apply it to our own lives. Lord, we pray that this would be more than ancient words, ancient text on on paper, uh, but this would be the very living words of the living God written on our hearts. So Lord, help us in that endeavor this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Heather and I are coming up on celebrating uh, 14 years of marriage in May. And uh, for those of you that are married, um, you'll know, maybe you've heard of the the Love Languages book, right? So there, there's a book, popular Christian book, that talks about love languages. And I feel like I've spent most of 14 years trying to understand love languages in my wife's. And I am convinced that hers changes annually. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like she's kind of got like, just keeping me on her toes, like... She feels like if I'm on her game, then, then, you know, she'll just switch it up on me. But one year, um, Heather's love language was the the, the love language of gifts, right? So feeling love by receiving gifts. And um, I thought I had figured that out. And so uh, I don't recall the year she may be able to if I, you know, if I really changed her life by this gift. But I knew that that year, um, all the rage was these outrageously expensive name brand purses called and Burke, right? I, I don't think I don't know if they're popular anymore. I, I ran this illustration by Heather. She said, "Yeah, that's that's not even a thing anymore." But, um, <laughs> but but I got Heather an authentically expensive and Burke purse, and, um, and 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 with that purse, well, hang on, I, don't, I don't want to jump the gun. I gave her the purse. I, I forget what the what the gift was for—whether it was birthday or anniversary. But I gave her the purse, and immediately. Heather begins investigating the purse. She unzips it and she goes to the inner lining, checks it out. She's looking at like the logo. She's looking at the stitches on the, on the tab. And I, I'm just like, what, is, what are you doing? Look at this, look at this gift. And, and she tells me, well, I'm seeing if it's real, right? Because you, you, there, there were knockoff versions of these purses and there were some things that would indicate whether this was authentic or or not. And, and Heather knew those things to go to. But, but, but at the end of, of really analyzing my gift, which I really felt depleted at that point, like it, it was, it was I felt vulnerable. But, but at the end of all of that, she still wasn't 100% sure because I've got a reputation for being rather frugal. So she, after even thinking, after looking at all those things that she knew to look at, she was... She was uncertain of whether it was real or not, but I had the magic. With the purse came a certificate of authenticity. And so I, yeah, that's right, bam, threw it out. <laughs> this thing is, I might have put the receipt with it, I don't know, but... Um, but But what Heather was looking for subjectively in those little signs and indicators in the zipper, all those things, what she was looking for subjectively, I was able to provide to her objectively to show her this is the real deal. Um, We as a Christian culture in Western America have really been swimming in um, this kind of current of subjectivity in relation to our encountering God. And so, so, you know, the experience of having a real, authentic encounter with God is oftentimes manipulated. And so, you know, you you spin on emotions, um, you spin on, you know, this impulsive decision that you have to make on the spot or else it's not genuine, um, you kind of, you, you might, you know, you might romanticize what this relationship with God is, is like by, you know, accepting Jesus into your heart or whatever that means. And, you know, like, like there's all these things that if you've been around the church or Christianity for any number of years, you're very familiar with. And um, God has actually um, made it very objective the way he reveals himself to us, um, Today's passage, the, the story we're going to walk through, is an objective experience that one person had with God. It was, yes, it has subjective elements to it. I'm not saying there's no subjectivity to, to the way we relate to God, but, but it is objectively true and even more so, this passage is more than about, this, this is more than about the one man, Moses. This is about the one ultimate deliverer that God would bring objectively to to earth, the one man, Jesus Christ. And so um, here's here's kind of the approach that I want us to do with this passage. I want us to, um, as with the Dunian Burke purse, I want us to analyze it a little bit subjectively. Um, but, but, But underneath that analyzation of this passage we're going to see some very real, um, kind of high watermark, objective things that is true of everyone's experience with God. And so, this isn't just a Moses and the God of the Old Testament encounter. This is a you and the living God right now encounter. And so, three things I'm going to have us look at that God actively and objectively does when we encounter Him, and they are these I want us to see how God pursues us. And then I want us to see how God protects us. And then I want us to see how God makes promises to us. So let's look first at how God pursues us. A um, couple of unexpected things um, happen between chapter 2 and what we've learned about Moses and now chapter 3. Uh, one of those is his location. Uh, the narrative says that he's now in uh, Horeb which is, it's, it's slang for Mount Sinai. Um, so Mount Sinai, kind of fast forward a little bit down Exodus, is where God is going to meet with his people on the mountain, deliver the, the law to them. So this, uh, you know, Horeb is like kind of calling it the Big Apple as to New York City, right? So, so it's kind of slang for that. So it identifies his unexpected location. He's out in the wilderness now. Um, he, God, reveals himself and, and really pursues Moses in an unexpected way by appearing, as the passage says in verse 2, as the angel of the Lord. Um, don't, don't want to get extremely bogged down in this. Um, if you want to read more on this, you know, email me. I'll give you some articles to read. But, but, but the angel of the Lord is, is widely used in the Old Testament. Okay? It, was, it, was more, it popped up more in the book of Genesis. It's only used this one time in Exodus. Okay? And so here, and again, there's much discussion on, you know, is this um, the second person of the Trinity? Is this Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ showing up in the fire, in the bush? Possibly. Um, One thing we can say without a doubt um, that this is the Lord. Like this is God revealing himself to a person. So it's not just an angel. It's not just a reflection of God. It is the very presence of God in this bush. Um, And one of the things I began to ask myself is, you know, we should always be asking ourselves questions of of why things are happening like they are. One of them is, why would God appear like this? You know, why in a fire and why in a bush? And why not just, just reveal himself fully right there on the spot? Say, this is who I am, Moses, and the answer is actually rather theological. The answer is two reasons. One is that God is omnipresent. Uh, That is that God is everywhere all of the time. And so when God chooses to reveal himself in a particular moment, it is simply one manifestation of his presence in space and time. And so God didn't cease to exist everywhere else at the time. He was there, but he was also everywhere. So it's it's one manifestation of it. But the other reason that God didn't fully reveal himself is because of his holiness and what that would have done to Moses. And so if God had showed up in his fullness on the spot, Moses would have been consumed. He would have been undone. We're going we're to kind of tease that out in a moment here. But the most surprising part, perhaps, about this opening narrative and how God pursues Moses is just the personal and individual nature of it. Um, track with me for a minute Moses' life. I mean, really chapters one and two has been this grand story of how God rescued this child out of water, brought him into the royal courts, gave him a, an Egyptian education. He now has royal influence. He's got power status And now he's out in the wilderness tending sheep. Um, And and they're not even his own sheep. Right? They're the the sheep of his father-in-law. So he's gone from status in the Egyptian royal courts with lots of influence, power, and resources to now working for his father-in-law. I mean, I love my father-in-law, but my prayer has been, God, if ministry doesn't work out, please don't make me work for my father-in-law's business um but 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 really god appears and pursues moses when everything else in his life appears at least humanly speaking to be a tragic failure you know like everything wasn't lining up the way that he thought it might you know everything wasn't pieced out the way that he thought it would be pieced together and it is in that in which god pursues moses personally when he's Come to an end of himself when he has really embraced the will of God in spite of his circumstances that did not play out the way that he thought that they would. So we see God pursues us first, secondly, uh, we see that God protects us uh, there I, I made mention at the introduction, big game super Bowls today I, I, I didn 't feel forced to draw the Super Bowl into the sermon, uh, but, it, but it's there, so I'm going to go with it. Uh, if you know nothing about football, you're going to hear a lot about it today after on TV and social media and all that stuff, but, but the, the two teams approach to today's game, I'm speculating, this is, you know, is preacher's spin on football, so you know, it might not be true, but the, the two teams I feel like going into this, what little I know about football, have two entirely different approaches, generally speaking, to the game. You've got the one team on the one hand who, who's the, the underdog, so to speak. This, I would say it's the Philadelphia Eagles. I don't, I don't know what the line on this is in Vegas or anything, but, but they are the ones with the least amount of experience in this level of a game. And, and I would assume that going into a game like this with little to no experience would have you entering it with, with a fearful approach. So almost like just a timidity and kind of just a, a caution, like not knowing what to expect. There's a, there's a fearful approach. Well, the other team, the Patriots, should I just go over here? Um, the Patriots um, <laughs> The Patriots are very familiar with this game. Right? They've been there many times. They've won most of those times. And I would say that their approach to this game would be a little more casual. It's a little bit more familiar. It's a little more comfortable to them, Right? Um, here here again is the tie-in. I think that people, generally speaking, at least those populating these seats, approach God usually in one of those two ways, either fearfully or casually. Um, and, and really, Moses and his encounter with God, really, um, it shows that neither of those are the healthy thing that we're going for. So, I mean, if you look at the way it lays out, the the very, th- so, so God is now, He's come as a visible presence, fire in a bush that's not being consumed. And the very first thing he tells Moses is a negative command. Do not come near. Okay, it's a warning. He says, don't come near this. Um, it, is, <clears throat> it is a warning of danger. He's saying, if you, essentially, if you come any closer to me as you are, you will be consumed. And so it's not a come-as-you-are approach, casual. It's a look-who-I-am approach, a bit of a fearful bent in that. But the second thing that God tells him to do is a positive command. He says, take your sandals off your feet. Off your feet. Now, <clears throat> the fact that, that Moses, first off, is wearing sandals would have been unique. Um, sandals were reserved for kind of the upper echelon of society, uh, this is probably a relic from his days in Egypt. Uh, so even, even shepherds who would have been on the ground and in the territory and in the wilderness a lot usually did it barefoot. Um, and so the fact, first off, that he had sandals was rare, um, but, but the symbolism, the deep symbolism behind removing the sandals before he went into that holy space is worth us unraveling for a moment. I mean, let's do the obvious one first, uh, is, the, is the filth, right? And so it's the, it's, the, it's the dirt and the mud and perhaps the feces and all of that that comes with being a shepherd in the wilderness with shoes. So God first is saying, don't bring your filth into my presence on its own. But secondly, and I think overlooked, is... Um, is God saying, don't bring your wealth here either. Don't bring your cleanness here. Again, rare that a shepherd had sandals. Uh, And and so really, Moses is still kind of lingering with his past in the Egyptian courts, and God's saying, don't bring that here either. I think us approaching God requires us to do both of those things. To remove our filth. I mean, to, to first off see it for what it is. Um, the inside dark corners of our hearts that, that really only we know, humanly speaking, but God certainly knows. Uh, to, to see really the levels of depravity which cover us. God says, don't, don't. Come into my presence with that. Uh, but, but even more noticeably and often overlooked is for us to approach God um, with our goodness. Like, like to present ourselves in a way that might be pleasing to Him on our own merit. Um, you know, a little bit of boastfulness in our spiritual disciplines or in our activity in the community or some of those rare wins that we have as parents. Like, like to present that as a means for coming into the presence of a God like this ought to be removed. Because what he's, he's beginning to show us is that approaching God on our own terms is extremely dangerous. Th- that's the principle. Like turning away from both your badness and your goodness, taking neither of those away but approaching God upon His terms is what He's after. Let me illustrate our approach to God using um, This Is Us. How many of you are watching the show This Is Us? <sighs> that is so sad. Um, you're still going to understand. So those, of, those four of you watching This Is Us are going to understand this illustration very well. The rest of you, you'll, you'll still get it. Um, and you need to, to DVR this and watch the show This Is Us. But in, in the show This Is Us, and spoiler alert, there, there's like the show's coming up tonight. So if you, you haven't watched the last episode, Emily? I'm just going to have to do this. Um, so in the last episode, there was a symbol um, that was used. I'll try to be vague, but I'm, I'm not going to be. Um, and it was the crock pot. Um, the crock pot um, in the last This Is Us episode is, is a powerful symbol behind something that seems so innocent on the surface, but really behind it is extremely dangerous. So in this show... Um, a crockpot starts a house fire. Uh, We don't know the conclusions of the house fire yet. That's that's tonight after the Super Bowl. But um, the crockpot was symbolic of this seemingly innocent and approachable object which behind it has much danger. We do the same thing with God. Um, We uh, think, like a crockpot, that God is safe, and warm. That he's very approachable. And he, he is those things. But what we forget is that behind the safety and the warmth of a slow-cooked meal in that crock pot is the possibility and the potential of great danger. And Moses is seeing that face-to-face. It reminds me of that great quote in C.S. Lewis where... In the, in the Chronicles of Narnia, where he says, God isn't safe, but he is good. So God begins to reveal himself to Moses in this way that protects him from himself. In a way that puts a barrier between the holiness of a God who could consume the sinfulness of a person in a heartbeat. So let's look thirdly at how God then makes promises to us in verses 7 through 10. Um, We have not been in Exodus very long, only a few weeks now. And the thing that continues um, to come up in our passages and and in my study of the Word is that God is intimately and deeply concerned with our affairs. Specifically with... um, with suffering and oppression and darkness, which is where God's people are. And in the midst of that, God makes a twofold promise to both the Israelites here and to us today. And the twofold promise is this, I will deliver you and I will dwell with you. It's the promise that God will deliver his people from their suffering and that he's going to dwell with them in their delight. Um, see, the, the same promises that God is making to them, He makes to us. Uh, that He's going to deliver us from our bondage. And, and our bondage is different than theirs. Um, our bondage is not under the taskmaster of an Egyptian uh, you know, work worker. Uh, that, is, that is not our plight. Um, but our, our bondage um, is one of um, an inability to escape our badness. Um, It is that ever-present struggle for us to escape our sin. And, And though, by God's grace, we may experience moments and seasons and chapters of victory over it, there's something that still entangles us. There's something that still has its claw within us. And God promises He will deliver us from that. Um, it's not just the badness, though. Um, It's also the goodness that I mentioned, uh, that he will deliver us from our goodness. Have you ever heard that from a pulpit? Like, God will deliver you from being such a good person. Because here's here's simply put what the gospel tells us, is you'll never be good enough. And so kind of that, that gnawing sense of having to exhaust yourself to do more, to try harder, to cleanse yourself in whatever arena that is, that thing that will not let you go, that is exhausting you, God in Christ says, I will deliver you from that. And here's how He'll deliver us from it, by coming and dwelling with us. Like the promise is ultimate and eternal. Like God is preparing the land of Canaan physically for these people, spiritually for us in the coming kingdom. But he's saying now, by his spirit, I will dwell with you. This never ceases to amaze me, that that God is under zero obligation to you. He's under no duty to be with you. Rather, he delights to do it. Believer, can you hear that today? Like, Like God is not just tolerating you because he has to. Like he's not just looking on you with these these pathetic puppy dog eyes like I feel so bad for them that I should probably want to be with them. See the God of the scriptures reveals himself as a person who wants to be with us. Like let that wash over you for a minute. The almighty God who burns with blazing passion of both joy, delight, holiness, righteousness, justice, and goodness, all truth, that God wants to be with me. So the, the question for us to kind of land with today is, how can I both safely and confidently approach a God like this? Because if you're hearing what I've heard today and you're, you're seeing what Moses has seen, albeit on a text, not visually, you're asking yourself that question. How can a God like this be approached? And the answer is singularly one answer. The only way to encounter a God like this is through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way. It's the only way to do it responsibly and safely, And also confidently and boldly. And here's why. Because on the surface, you know, your varied facts that you know about Jesus, on the surface, Jesus may appear like a crockpot to you. Let's be honest. Um, He's gentle, he's warm, he's friendly, he seems like a nice guy. Um, and, and, And those things are probably true. Um, But the scriptures show us a man who came to earth to fall under the flames of judgment under a holy God on a wooden cross. Like he came to remove the very barrier that would separate you from his father by taking all of that on his own shoulders and back. Like he experienced everything that we ought to dreadfully fear. He experienced that on our behalf, as our substitute, so that that would no longer fall on anyone, anyone who would trust in Him. Anyone. And so regardless of your badness and respective of your goodness, Jesus delights to take that for you. But the thing about it is, Jesus is returning. And He's not returning like a crockpot. Um, I want to read a passage to you with very... It's a very sober tone, and I realize I'm going to end on this tone a bit. But in the New Testament, it describes what the return of that one will be like. And it will not be like His first coming. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 says that when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. I read you that not as a fear tactic. I read you that not as some way to help you to make some compulsive decision towards bowing the knee to this one. But I read you that to remind you that Jesus satisfied every and all conditions for you to safely dwell with Him. He's done it all. God no longer encounters those who trust in His Son with a flame of judgment. Because Jesus was consumed by that flame. The believer today, believers in Christ, hear this today, you are welcome to encounter a holy and living God as sons and daughters. And if you're here today and that doesn't describe you, if you're not trusting in the work of that one, let me offer an invitation that you would consider doing so. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Reading your word sometimes can seem either distant and irrelevant or overwhelming and burdensome. Uh, Lord, I pray that today would be neither of those. Lord, I pray that you would help us to look at your servant Moses, whom you pursued, you protected, you made promises to, and we would see ourselves in that very scenario. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here in this room today who does not know you, and the gospel of your Son, Jesus, that you would draw them, that you would show them, yes, the flames of judgment that ought to come their way, but you would also show them the perfect and finished work of your Son, Jesus. And Lord, help us all to fall amazed at what he has done to remove the barrier between a holy and just God and sinful people like us, that we can dwell with you, that we can know you, that we can delight in you because you've done those things for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.